Well, today we're going to dive right back into our 1 Corinthians letter. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever received information that suddenly changed how you saw and thought about a situation or thought about the world, perhaps? With that in mind, perhaps you can understand when a couple came home one day and on their front porch, their neighbors had left this note on the front porch. It says, a group of your neighbors wish to announce that the one-way frosted glass in your bathroom is facing the wrong way. That's some important information. You know what happened is they immediately stopped using that bathroom. They saw it in a completely different way. And there's something about when we have knowledge and a certain perspective, things that perhaps we understood and we believed and maybe we trusted and we would bet our life on, suddenly we have a new way of viewing it. This has happened throughout history. The idea that there's these things called germs in the history of time is actually a relatively new development. Now, I know because, especially because of 2020, we're all washing our hands significantly more than we used to. But the practice of washing your hands, even in the medical profession, is a recent advent. Because there was not an understanding of germ theory and the things that you could not see could actually play a role in your health. And then once it was discovered, it radically changed everything. Well, that's where we are in this letter. And Paul, the apostle, the one that is spending the second half of his life going around proclaiming the name of Jesus and planting churches is going to give some information today to one of these churches. And we're calling this a beginner's guide because the church in Corinth is very much, they were very much a beginner. But we're also calling it because in many ways with what the church has experienced going through COVID and 2020 and all the changes and all the, the challenges that's going on in our culture, in many ways it's like we're all beginners again. And so, if you're brand new, maybe you're in this room or you've joined us online, if you're brand new to the church experience, this is great for you. Because we're all going back to square one with this. Many of the things that we thought and assumed, and we just thought we could count on, and that's just the way that church worked, or that's the way the world worked, has gone by the wayside. And so we're going back to see what Paul, one of the original ones that, preached and shared and taught about Jesus. He says, here's how the church should live. And in today's passage, he's going to give us something. He's going to give us some information that changes how we see the world. So if you have your scripture journals, you can find this on page 8. If you've got a Bible or an app, 1 Corinthians Verses, or chapter 1, verse 18. And I do hope you have a means to write, whether it's in the journal or it's in your Bible or perhaps highlight on your app, because there's some things that I want to note in this that are going to be important for us to understand. But I'd like to read these verses just straight through at the beginning, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack them. 
Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is giving them the information that reorients their world view. See, our, our world view is the lens with which we look out and we interpret the world in which we live. And your worldview is affected and is developed by many things. It has a lot to do with the area that you grew up in, the family you grew up in, the culture you grew up in, the education that you had, people that you really respect that were older than you and they mentored you, how they thought, how they saw the world impacts your worldview. And so when you look out in the world... There could be two people looking out in the world at the same time and seeing it completely different because of our worldview. Lots of our conflict and the tension that we feel in our nation right now and in the world is based on worldviews, specifically in the, the political area. Different worldviews of what the government's job should be and shouldn't be. Those are worldviews coming into conflict, understandings of what the government should be doing, what it should not be doing, coming into conflict. And so there we have great debates and these arguments and these fights over it because of the worldview that you hold. And oftentimes it's difficult to even understand or maybe be aware of the worldview that we have because it's just so intrinsic in us. You know, it's kind of like the old saying, is the fish actually aware of the water that it's swimming in? That's its natural habitat, and our worldview is the same way, and we're always trying to interpret the world through that, through that way of thinking about it and that way of looking at it. And what Paul is doing here to this beginning church and to us is he's going to realign our worldview. But he's given us a warning. You notice what he's saying? He's saying... This worldview is going to seem crazy to those that don't hold it. It's going to seem foolish to those that don't buy into it. It's going to seem impractical to the world. So Paul is already calling his shot right at the beginning. He's saying, as you come to know who Jesus is, as you come to know what the gospel is, you need to understand it realigns your worldview. But you can't look to the world, you can't look to culture, you can't look to the society around us to prop you up and say, yeah, that seems really, really smart. That seems really, really right. Because it runs in conflict to it. 
And so let me show you a couple things that I want you to understand as we go into this. Right back to the beginning of what we read. Verse 18. There's a phrase that he opens up with. It says, for the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross. And that's one of those lines I want you to circle, underline, highlight. And when you get to this word right here, word, in Greek... The word that he's using is called logos. It's the same word that John, the author of the Gospel of John, uses right at the beginning of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Logos. What John is tapping into, and what Paul is tapping into, is this idea of logos. It's, it's wisdom. You can be telling this wisdom, a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world, a, a philosophical mindset that, by which you would view the, wor- the world. And it's also the word where we get, or it's the word that co- we get our word logic from, logos, logic. And so it's a way of thinking about things. It's a way of reasoning about things. And so what he says is the thinking of the cross is folly. It's not going to make sense to anybody on the outside. It's going to thwart them. It's going to confound them. Because what we're holding up and what we're saying is that a would-be itinerant rabbi from the Jews that claimed to be the Son of God suffered an execution as a criminal, and that's our Lord. That's the one we follow. And it just makes no sense. If, if you were to tell anybody in the first century, I follow a man that was crucified, they would say, well, that's a short trip. That's not going anywhere. Because they knew what crucifixion was. They knew that people didn't come off of crosses and have a resurgence in their careers. And it makes no sense to the world. And so Paul's leading with this, of this idea of following a crucified Savior is crazy. Let me give you some takeaways as we jump to this. So the first takeaway is this. The cross is not just something we think about, but it teaches us how to think. The cross is not simply something that we think about, but the cross teaches us how we think. When it comes to issues in the world, when it comes to things that we face, power and success, just to pick two, the cross teaches us to think about those differently. Again, because nobody in the world would look at the cross and say, now that's success. That's the epitome of what I want to shoot for. It teaches us to redefine our perspective, to redefine our thinking. And once again, it's a battered, bruised, and bloody Jesus that hangs on the cross. And one thing that it teaches us to think is that if that's what it cost then this idea that I'm just okay all on my own is ridiculous. 
In, in fact, it's often I'll be in conversations with people, and they'll ask about, about you know, explain Christianity or explain, you know, why do you guys think you have a superior claim? And I want to come back and say, I, if you mean superior claim by I think I'm somehow holier than thou, that's not true. Because at the basis of what the cross teaches me to think is the realize, realization that I can't do this on my own. I'm a mess. Except for Jesus. And so the claim of Christianity and the claim of the cross and the wisdom that does not make sense is not that somehow I'm going to go through enough self-help and get my life together in such a way where I can then present myself to God, whoever He may be out there, and He's going to nod approvingly at me because I did the work. He said, no. The basis of our claim is that I'm a mess, and on my own, I'm unredeemable. I'm not worth the time. But, by the folly of the cross, Jesus redefines who I am. The cross teaches us how to think. It's not just something that we think about. Second word that I want to highlight for you is in verse 22. If you have verse 22, look for it. And verse 22 says this, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And again, he's going right at it, and he's going to challenge both mindsets. He's going to challenge both ways of thinking. And so he uses this word, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, first of all, the word stumbling block is the word scandal on. That's where we get the word scandal from. So it's not just like, man, it's kind of hard for them to get their minds around this. You may have to explain it twice, Paul. What Paul knows his Jewish audience, and he knows that this is not just difficult to get their minds around. It's offensive to them. There are passages in the Old Testament that says anyone that was hung on a tree is cursed. And so Paul comes along with the message and says, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that you put all your hopes in, the one that we think is going to restore all that's right and true and blessed in the world and bring peace, he's the one that you executed. He, he's the one whose body was a broken mess on the cross. So... You're talking about not something that's just difficult to understand, but something that's offensive for them to embrace. And then he also talks about the wisdom and the folly it is to the Gentiles. This is everybody else. And you have to understand, the first century was not ignorant. They were very sophisticated in the, in the Greek mindset that developed a lot of our Western mindset today. And the idea of wisdom was pursued and it was held in high esteem. But it was always seen as an upward mobility. And the more wise you got, the more powerful you got. The more influence you received. The more your status elevated. And now they're being challenged with a message that says wisdom is found in one that laid down his life in a violent way. One that met his end in the justice of Rome. So all this is being challenged. 
All this is being brought into thing. And so the second takeaway that I want you to understand is what Paul is bringing to us is the cross is not just something that we look at, but it's something that which we look through to see the world clearly. The cross begins to redefine. It's a new, it's a new lens for us to see the entire world. A few years back, I got a, a chance to go with the student ministry when they went to Dry Bones Ministry in Denver, Colorado. And, and on this trip, uh, we were, had the opportunity to work with the Dry Bones Ministry that works, spends all year long working with homeless youth on the streets of Denver. And as they begin to prep us for the week and, and get us ready to go and be a part of this ministry, they had a phrase that they kept using. And they referred to any of those that were from the streets of Denver, any of their homeless friends, as, first of all, their friends. They said, later this week you're going to meet my friends. And they spoke about them in that way, very authentically and very passionately. And then they kept using this phrase all week long. They said, because we believe that everybody has unsurpassable worth. And they just kept saying it over and over and over again. It's unsurpassable worth. And I just remember the first time they said it, it was like, okay, sure. But as they said it again and I could see them live it out, it began to change how I saw the people that they worked with. And what they didn't see is they didn't see a problem. They didn't see a political issue. They didn't see a societal blight. They saw a person. And then they would introduce us to those people. And give us the opportunity to see a person of unsurpassable worth. And that's exactly what the cross does. The cross gives us the ability to see everyone, everyone through a new lens. Everyone in a new way. Because every person that you, can, you come into contact with is a person that Jesus felt like it was worth dying for. And if that doesn't change your worldview, I'm not sure what will. But that's what he's calling us to. And then the last thing I'd share with you is this. Go back, to, go back to the verse real quick, Crystal. The Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Next verse, look what he does. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and we'll finish it out with this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He wraps the whole world in in those sentences. To the Jews, to those that already think they've got it with God, and they think their path to God is going to be their righteousness, and to the Greeks and the Gentiles, which is everybody else in the known world at that time, who think that they're going to be able to accomplish it through power and wisdom and their own smarts, that they're going to be able to overcome this. He says that to everybody and he says they've all got to come under this crucified one. This Christ is crucified on the cross. So this takeaway 
is this. Grace is for everyone, and grace can save anyone, even you. Grace is for everyone. It does not know boundaries. It does not, not limit it to a single language, to a single skin tone, to a single political party, to a single worldview. It's for everyone. But the point that I think some of you in this room and some of you watching me online right now need to understand is it's for it can save anyone including you, because when I say that, you've got a long list in your head of ways that you have failed and you have fallen short and you've messed up and you've blown up your own life and you've got a mess on your hands. That's why we preach Christ crucified for you. I want to shift because what we need to do with this as a church is some very specific ways for us as a church, I believe. Several months back, I asked for you to ask me questions. We call it, Can We Talk? And I received numerous questions. The two major areas that I received questions was, one, in the issue of the sexual brokenness that's in our world, from sexual identity to some of the transgender movements going on, and all kinds of questions around who we are and how does our sexuality play out in our life and what's biblical. We're going to get to some of that. But the other major area of questions that I received was, what's our vision as a church? What's our, what's our calling as a church? Where do we sense God is leading us? The elders have been in prayer and in study. The ministers have been in prayer and study, and we've been doing our best to discern where God's leading us and I want to share some of the things that God's revealed to us. And these come from your shepherds and passions that God has placed on our hearts. And to get that, how are we going to be the church that lives into this crazy idea that a crucified Jewish would-be carpenter turned rabbi be the one that brings us hope? So... I'm going to share with you a passage that I think is going to set this up that Paul's talking about, and it comes out of his second letter to the Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 4, 5, you just want to make a note about this? Because this is where we're going to take the crucified Christ and we're going to proclaim him to the world. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I had heard that verse many, many times, read it myself many times. Recently, I heard some teaching on it, and suddenly they slowed me down long enough and made me pay attention to what's going on. There's two major things going on in this verse. First is, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. There's a proclamation part of that. Yes, believe that. The part that jumped out at me was, with ourselves... As your servants for Jesus' sake. We proclaim and we share a message. Or another way to say it is we, we share and we serve. We're servants. We're pour, pouring ourselves out on behalf of others. And I think so often churches get on one end of the spectrum or the other. They want to be very evangelistic, but they're of no earthly good for the community that they live in. Or it's all about the ministries, it's all about the caring, but there's never the sharing. 
There's never the proclamation of Jesus. And so our elders, our shepherds are convicted. We're convicted that what God's calling us to do is to be both. So I'm going to walk through some of the vision statements that we have for coming up. And we started praying over what the next five years could look like. Next five years is going to be 2026. And so what kind of church do we believe that God would be leading us to as we lean into the craziness is of the claim that Jesus is Lord, that the cross is sufficient, and the tomb is empty? What, what are we going to do over the next five years, and what would God be calling us to? And so I just want to share these with you, and these are just from the elders and from my heart. And so the first one's this. In the next five years, we want to be a church that invites and challenges every adult to know what it's like to help someone else cross the line of faith. There is a blessing in my job that I get to do on a regular basis. I've had an opportunity to be at people when, be with people when they get married, to be with people when they take their last breath, but the thing that I love the most is being with people when they step across that line of faith and they say, Jesus is Lord, and they enter into the waters of baptism. That, that's addictive. And we're not a church where the ministers do all the work. We're a church where every believer of Jesus is a minister. You've heard me say this before. The only difference between you and me is my office happens to be on this campus. That's it. We're all ministers. And so we want to find ways to help you and challenge you to grow. Sandy Deathridge is already helping us do this by helping train up some people to lead Bible studies, to use some video resources that he's familiar with and we're learning to be familiar with, to reach international students at Baylor through this, to reach locally here. We want to give everybody an opportunity to experience what it's like to know that they were used by God to help somebody else cross that line of faith, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and change the population of heaven. Which leads me into the second one. And within five years, we believe in this so much that we are praying that God would see us average a baptism a week. And we're going to try to figure out what it takes to do that. Because we believe that heaven and hell are both real. And Jesus is the deciding factor between the two on where you spend eternity. So we are praying and going to be passionate about that. Here's the third one. Is this. Go ahead and advance this one. We're praying that we become a diversified church to reflect both the kingdom of God and our community. We believe that God has placed us here in this place at this time for a reason. And so we want to become diversified, not, not so that we can hit some kind of quota, not so we can just say that we are, but because the kingdom of God, this is a message for every tribe, every nation, every continent, every people's group. And we want to reflect the community that God put us in. And so we want to find ways to build bridges and go with the, this message that Jesus is Lord right here around us. So we are praying about that, that God would continue to send us people 
that are different, but reflect this community right here, because we believe we're planted right here, which leads me to the next one, is that we want to own a two-mile radius around our campus. Now, own, we're not going to buy it, but we want to feel responsible for it. And if you draw a two-mile radius around our campus, why two miles? Well, we just thought we'd have a little fun with it. Jesus says, go one mile, but go an extra mile. There's two miles. That's about as far as my math is going to go. But we're drawing a circle around that, and we're saying, okay, inside of that two miles, who can we minister to? Who can we help? Who, who can we become a partner with? You have everything from Bird Creek Mobile Community to the Western Hills Elementary to the Impact Church to the Avenue G Church to Hope Pregnancy to the Love of Christ Food Pantry. We, we've got all these opportunities. And we don't know all the ways that God's going to use in that, but we want to have a specific prayerful focus where we're reaching into that two-mile community. And we're going to be coming up with different ways. We already do a thing called Christmas Table Project every December. We're bringing it back in full force this year. COVID, COVID had us make some adjustments last year. We're coming back in, in, in full force. And we're going to try to find ways to do, the, to do about three of those size events every single year focused in the two miles around our, around our campus. We're going to proclaim the message, and we're going to serve in the name of Jesus. So we're going to do both. The next one's this. In the next five years, we want to become a partner in planting a church somewhere in North, North America. doesn't mean we're going to do it all by ourselves, but we're going to prayerfully seek out partners to plant a church because we believe this. Christians should reproduce Christians. Churches should plant churches. This is the way that the gospel advances. This is the way that we proclaim what, what God is calling us to. And that everyone here would be a part of that in, in your own life, your own ministry, wherever God's placed you, whatever place of business, whatever family, whatever neighborhood, whatever street, that you are reaching those right around you and you're getting a chance to see what it's like for God to use you to reproduce Christ and someone else and we think churches should be doing the same and so we want to find some way some place in North America that where we partner with other churches and we play a role in planning another church so that somewhere right now where a church doesn't exist we are become a part of lifting up the name of Jesus in that. Does all of this sound crazy? You bet it does. That's the folly of the cross. We're learning to trust to do, to trust God that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And so I would end with this. One of the great apologists in our world is a guy named John Lennox. And he's an incredibly smart mathematician in Oxford. Now, he's a genius mathematical thinker, but he's also a philosophical thinker in the fact that he thinks about Christianity and what it means in the world. And he wrote a story about him with an encounter with a Jewish woman while he toured the Holocaust museums in Germany. So here's an account of that. Lennox met a Jewish woman while he was touring Eastern Europe. 
She was doing research about her parents and other relatives who were executed in Nazi concentration camps. As a part of the guided tour, Lennox traveled with the woman to view a Holocaust exhibit. After entering a replica of the concentration gate, they encountered a display of the horrible medical experiments conducted by Dr. Joseph Mengele. The pictures showed that Mengele used children for many of his infamous experiments. The woman turned to Lennox and asked, What does your religion make of this? Lennox wondered what in the world he would say to this woman who had lost his family members in the Holocaust. She stood next to the display, patiently waiting for an answer. Eventually, Lennox said, I would not insult your memory, the memory of your parents, by offering you simplistic answers. I have young children. I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, such as what we see here. I have no easy answers, but I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. The woman asked him to share more. So he says to her, You know that I am a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as Savior. I know that this is difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua, if Jesus was really God, what was God doing on a cross? Lennox went on to share his belief that the cross is just the place where God begins to meet all human heartbreak. Rather than remaining distant and remote and uninvolved, God comes close to human suffering and becomes a part of it. Lennox told her that the Messiah on a cross is the beginning of hope for him, a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemies of death and evil. Jesus conquered the darkness of the cross and rose to new life. One day he will judge everything in absolute fairness, goodness, and mercy. The woman listened in silence. Then quietly, with tears coming down her face, she said, Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? We believe that though it's a crazy, foolish message, God is calling us to tell in this time and this place the world about the Messiah that died for them and rose again. If you would, stand with me. Let's pray together, please. Father, I'll be the first to admit, so much of this seems foolish. But I pray you would open our hearts and our minds and our very lives to this truth. And whatever scandal or offense or stumbling block that we may see, whatever's not politically incorrect about it, that you would give us the courage to overcome. Father, for anybody that's listening to this message today that, that doesn't know this Messiah, that sees nothing but the foolishness of it, the scandal of it, that you would begin the process of breaking through their hearts, that you would use us, Father, to break into their life. Father, I pray that each one of us would become passionate and bold about sharing and about serving. That we would see the world through the lens of the cross 
and we would see it with the unsurpassable worth that you see it. And then we would actually do something about that. We would live that way. Father, may this be the message that's both proclaimed and demonstrated by the Western Hills Church. Father, I'm so grateful. And I ask in the name of Jesus, the one who laid down his life so that I could be reached, that no one's too far gone from, no one's out of the reach of, and that all may come to know is Lord. It's in his name I pray. Together we say, Amen.